during this time of the year, the phone in the church office rings pretty often with individuals who are calling to request some financial assistance. This is, after all, the time of the year when utility bills begin to climb and everyone wants at least something under the tree for their loved ones and many people in our community need just a little bit of help to get to and through Christmas. When someone calls asking for assistance, we don't offer financial help while we're on the phone, but we do offer to meet with that person, to listen to their circumstance, to evaluate their uh, condition, if they're willing to come to the church and see us. Several years ago, when I served in another congregation, a woman to whom I'd made that offer took me up on it and asked where the church was located. So I gave her the address of the church and mentioned that it was right downtown. She paused for a moment and said, well, Pastor, are there any landmarks near your church? And I responded, ma'am, we are the landmark. <laughs> I'd always assumed that our 19th century big, beautiful Gothic structure with a bell tower that stretched up toward heaven was an icon for everyone in the community. But that phone call and this gospel lesson reminds me how easy it is for me, of all people, to make that mistake. John says to the crowds who were coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Remember, they weren't going downtown to find John. They went out into the desert into the countryside, into the wilderness, where, as we heard last week, the word of God had come to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, the people in the crowd, of course, knew their way to the temple, to the center of religious life in their community, but the people in the crowd also knew that they would not be able to find a place for themselves in that religious apparatus, because the people in this crowd were sinners. They were tax collectors. They were soldiers. They were the kind of people on whom religion had long ago turned its back. They were the kind of people who had learned from experience not to bother, people who had given up on religion altogether. And so they went not to the temple, not to the synagogue, but to the wilderness to see John, and John wanted to know why. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, he said. Are you here because you want to laugh at me, to point a finger and snicker? Are you curious? Do you just want to see whether the rumors you've heard are true about the wild-eyed prophet out in the wilderness, or are you here for something else? He berates them. He questions their integrity. He wants to know whether they're there for any good reason. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. He says to them, God can raise up children to ancestor from these stones around us. Why are you here? Is your idea of a relationship with God going through the motions, showing up and saying the words, or do you want something more? Do you want the kind of relationship that matters? 
And to our amazement, after John had beaten them over the head with his theology of repentance, the people responded saying, what would you have us do? Tell us. What would we do? What can we do? Something about their circumstance, something about their desperation had led them, despite all of John's attempts to push them away, to come and ask and seek. John had left the religious institutions of his day as well. John had given up on the synagogue. John had given up on the temple. He was suspicious of their motivations, but their intention is revealed. John's message of repentance is good news to those on whom religion has turned its back. God, John says to them, whoever you are and wherever you've been, take the first small step. Take that first gesture. John says, let me describe for you what repentance looks like. It looks like someone having two coats, sharing one with someone who's cold. Repentance looks like someone who has enough food for himself, sharing with one who doesn't have enough. For a tax collector, it means collecting only what's due you. To a soldier, it means being satisfied with your wages and not extorting more from those with threats or false accusations. John invites them, therefore, not to leave their lives behind, not to quit their jobs, not to leave their families and join him in the wilderness, but to take one small step, just one, one tiny but meaningful gesture, one effort to reveal that there's enough space in the heart and mind for God to come and find them, even if it is way out in the wilderness. In the religious culture that we inhabit, how often do we hear a message of repentance that sounds like that? How often do the religious voices of our day offer that simple, small step as the only gesture it takes to come back to the flock of the faithful? I don't know about you, but I hear a lot about axes at the root of trees, about fires burning, waiting to consume those who bear no fruit. But the religious language of today seems to be missing what John the Baptist saw as good news, as a small, gentle invitation, a modest step to come back to the faithful. Today's religious voices seem to assume that you've got to be perfect in order to belong to God. And unless you and I are willing to do something about it to change that narrative, the world will think that they're right. The world will see a church like ours, a symbol of the religious institution of our day, and presume that there is no welcome waiting for them here. One of the great resources that the Episcopal Church has is its downtown location. In lots of communities around the country, just a few blocks away from the center of public life, you will find an Episcopal Church a congregation that has been a part of the community as long as there has been a community. But as the religious landscape has changed, our location has become as much a liability as an asset. Because just as in John the Baptist's day, the corridors of power 
have become confused with the corridors of religion. It's hard to tell where institutional authority and institutional faith stop. That strange marriage of American Christianity and American politics have made it really hard to be a church that is in the world without being mistaken for a church that is of the world. People who walk by the front of our church see St. Paul's and assume that a big fancy church like ours is full of big and fancy people who believe that their big fancy God loves big and fancy people like them more than the rest of the world. Now we know that's not true. We know it's not true, but do we blame the world for believing it? How can you tell the difference between a church like ours and the voices of religious authority that fill our airwaves? How can you tell who will tell the difference? We've got to become a wilderness church, but become a wilderness church without abandoning our place at the center of our community. We have to become a path for those whom culture has pushed to the edge of society, to the edge of civilization. We have to be a path that brings them back into the center of our common life. We have to be a refuge for those on whom religion has turned its back because everyone needs to know and discover that they belong in the center of God's reign. But who will tell them that? Who will tell them that good news? If we want to be a church like that, if we want to offer the good news to those who have given up on church, we've got to become like John the Baptist, a little wild and a little uncouth. We've got to leave our pews. They're not actually all that comfortable, but the place that we sit, the place in this structure is a place of comfort. And we've got to venture out to the hinterlands, to the edge of where civilization stops, to find those people who've run away from what we represent. Because they're not coming downtown. They assume that downtown gave up on them a long time ago. We might think of ourselves as an icon of hope, But is that how the world sees us? What does it take for them to see what we know to be true? We must pick up the good news of repentance. Not a repentance that is a condemnation of those who are imperfect, but repentance as an invitation for those who are disaffected to come back home. That's all repentance is. It's a turning back a coming back home. The religious voices of our day would have us believe that there are people among us who aren't worth saving, but that's not the good news of the gospel. The good news is a message that brings the crowds streaming to the prophet on the banks of the Jordan River to find again their place with God. The good news of repentance is a message of renewal, of restoration, of healing to those who gave up on church a long time ago. Who's going to take that message of return to the fringes of society? Will it be us? We can't be a people who believe that God's love belongs to everyone and then presume that someone else is going to take that love to them. It's got to be us. 
you've got eight days. You've got eight days until Christmas Eve. Sure, you've got shopping to do. Yes, you've got cards to write. But how might you use those eight days to invite someone to come back home? Is there any better time to be home than Christmas? Who is it in your world who gave up on church because they don't know what church can be? Because they don't know the kind of welcome and renewal and hope that a church like ours represents. They won't get here unless you invite them. Eight days until Christmas Eve, whom will you bring with you into this place of love? Amen.